Father, again, thank you for, as we're gathered here, we are truly, as we gather, believing that you have something to speak to our hearts. Uh, Father, I pray that as we look into your scriptures, that your spirit would speak to us and, and really challenge us and encourage us. Father, we don't know if we're in the last days, but if we are, we want to be equipped. We want to know um, what you're going to be doing, and we want to be prepared for when Christ comes back. So as we talk about the millennium, Lord, I ask God that uh, truly there would be a sense of excitement in our hearts as we examine your word. Uh, there's just so many questions. Father, this is an astronomically huge puzzle in your scriptures that you've laid before us, and so many godly men and women have come out on different uh, pages concerning it. And I just ask you, Father, would you please grant us humility? Would you grant us honesty with your word? And would you speak to us? Father, we truly do want you to speak to us with your truth. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. And I keep saying, what is the purpose of us even talking about the millennium? And I, and I keep not answering that question. Um, as far as in our time so far. Now, I've just turned the tape on, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you that there are numerous passages in the Old Testament that if there is no thousand-year millennium, we have only two options, and that is either this age, the church age, or the age to come, which would be the eternal state. Now, coinciding with this age is the age in heaven, and that's called the intermediate state. We don't have our resurrected bodies. It is just our spirit. Where's our body? In the ground, okay, awaiting to be resurrected. Um, and so, as we look into these Old Testament passages, the the wolf laying down with the lamb, actually it's on the, they got it right here, it's not the lion laying down with the lamb, it's the wolf laying down with the lamb. Um, and we have to ask, where does that fit? Where does this, because right after that is, um, and there, that there will be peace throughout my holy mountain. Does that just mean then that there's only going to be peace on Jerusalem on the millennial age? Or is it speaking of something else? And, and I believe as we went through it, it's speaking of this age. It will be a time in which the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. There's numerous passages that we now, instead of kind of saying, well, that doesn't seem to fit either this age or the age to come, so we're going to put it in the millennium. I'm going to say, let's not do that. Uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, talking about the rebuilding of the temple, the water, this, the river that flows from the south side of the temple on into the Dead Sea. Everywhere it goes, it brings life. Is that this age or the age to come? There are many in these camps here, uh, mostly in this camp, that would say that's for the millennium. And I would say, no, I, I truly don't believe that. Number one, because there is not this millennium. But number two, as we look at that section of scripture, how Ezekiel treats it both before it and sets us up for it. And then during that passage, it's talking about the church age. And it, when we see it from that perspective, in my estimation, for me, it opens up a whole new arena as far as what God wants to do in this age. And I'm not a pessimist when it comes to the gospel or the growth of the kingdom. I do believe that it will grow throughout this earth. And for me, that's exciting. As I look around, especially people after World War II, Man, there's just no hope. I'm going to say, it doesn't matter what our generation is facing right now. This is what God will do. And I would love to have a very positive outlook and say, I'm going to evangelize. I'm going to share the gospel. I want to see revival happen in our land. And as we, as we do this and as we're aggressive in sharing Christ, that we would see all nations come to Christ. That is what Matthew 28 challenges us to do. Make all nations disciples. Okay, that is the literal reading of that passage. Make all nations disciples. Okay, 
I want to read a passage here. Too. So what, anyway, what I'm saying is, is the purpose of us looking at the millennium is it now allows us to understand uh, a general framework for the New Testament, but also for the old and how many of the prophets foretold of things to come. And many of them have to do with the, the future state of what heaven will look like. And so for me, that's exciting. And it paints some very vivid pictures of that, but also in our church age and the hope of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom. Okay, let me read a passage to you. This is from George Eldon Ladd. George Eldon Ladd is a historic premillennialist. Um, he would not hold to the rapture. Um, he passed away around 80, 1982. He would be considered in, in not just my estimation, but in many estimations, the main guy when it comes to historic premillennialism. Um, very well-known uh, teacher, um, put a book out, uh, wow, the, the name of it is, I think it's the Theology of the New Testament, um, that has probably been used by more uh, seminaries than any other book except maybe Calvin's Institutes. Um, and so he, he is very well, or was very well respected, sure is very well respected in, in heaven, but he was very well respected, very much looked up to, and he writes this, he's responding, this book is on the four views of the millennium, and he's responding to Hokimus, who's an amillennialist, his presentation, okay? And this is what he says, and I want you to try and follow him as he, as he, as he speaks here. He says, I am in agreement, as a historic premillennialist, I am in agreement with practically all that Hokima has written, with the exception of his exegesis of Revelation 20. Skipping down. I admit that the greatest difficulty to any premillennialist is the fact that most of the New Testament pictures the consummation as occurring, the consummation is this right here, as occurring <clears throat> at Jesus' parousia. However, if one believes in progressive revelation, this is no insuperable problem, meaning that not just from Old Testament to New, there's a greater revelation, the mystery kept hidden in ages past, now revealed, but that even in the New Testament, there is a progressive revelation of God. I don't believe that myself, okay? I believe the mystery of the kingdom has been fully revealed. Uh, it was revealed in the Gospels, whether we fully understand it or not, it's there. Uh, it's maybe more elaborated, but there's no new revelation that the other gospel, that the others in the New Testament didn't write to us. Therefore, when we come to Revelation 20, um, I would never want to rest my case on a millennium on one passage of Scripture. I just wouldn't want to do that um, because this is an extremely difficult passage at that. And to to believe in something like this based on a very difficult passage to understand is questionable to me. And so he goes on. He says the Old Testament does not foresee or precisely predict the church age. It sees the future exclusively in terms of Israel as the people of God. Therefore, the fact that the New Testament in only one place teaches an interim kingdom between this age and the age to come is no reason for rejecting it. And as I've shared, I, I do disagree with that. Now, but the reason why I've, I've shared this with you is because uh, even with someone as with such a stature as George Eldon Ladd holding to the historic premillennialism, he concedes and says the New Testament doesn't really talk about it. The New Testament doesn't. And if it does, it's very murky. There's really only one passage. 
Um, and so, obviously, not all premillennialists agree with what he just said. Um, and especially in the dispensational premillennial camp, which is only about 150 years old, um, the teachings within this um, have never been taught before. Uh, some have tried to point the rapture all the way back to the early church. I would suggest it, it certainly does not. There's only one person that's quoted to do that. And that passage, I truly do not believe, is what he is talking about. He's not talking about the rapture. But you can read. I, I can't tell you the name of the person because I've forgotten. But it, it's only about 150 years old. Um, I'm not going to say, therefore, it's wrong. But it causes me to step back with skepticism and say, how is it that over 1,800 years of phenomenal biblical scholars have never seen the, the, the premillennialist position, uh, excuse me, the, the dispensational position. So it causes me to be very skeptical of it as a result, okay? And then as we study the scriptures, I, I don't come out on that page. But what I want to do right now is I want us to look at Revelation 20. We've already looked at verses 1 through 3. Um, we went into, I think, pretty much depth with regard to that. That the key that's spoken of here is a symbolic key. It represents authority. It's not a literal key. And for the most part, premillennialists would agree with that. I don't believe that Satan is a literal red dragon. And he's depicted here as this red dragon from Revelation 12. He is the devil. Um, but dragon or serpent comes from Genesis 3 as he as he took on this form and therefore when we speak of the dragon uh, or this the old serpent we we are reminded he is the tempter that led all of mankind astray which is as we found here the very reason for his being bound all right um we I'm not going to rehash everything um, I would encourage you, again, if you want to, because we do have two people here who, three actually, including John, who weren't here last week. And so I do believe, um, I have a very different perspective on the abyss. I do not believe that it's a place. It is, neither is Tartarus. That's from Second Peter 2, 4. That is a realm as the, even as the, Heavenly realms are, are realms. Jesus is in the heavenly places or heavenly realms, so are demons. So they are, that is not a place, that is a realm. It is a spiritual realm and Tartarus as well. All demons have been consigned to Tartarus, but they still tempt. And so as, as we go through this, the abyss, same thing. You can still be in the abyss, tempt, deceive. And as we come to that phrase, deceive all, deceive the nations, there is both the in the extent when he is released that we see in verse 7 and 8. The extent is he deceives all nations and his intent is to make war against the saints. And we see this uh, truly throughout the, the book of Revelation. Satan and the beast, their goal is to deceive all nations and to make war against the saints over and over uh, we, we see this uh, when they are introduced in the book of Revelation. So here's what I want to do. Uh, we're going to pick up on verse 4. My goal is to be able to finish uh, this evening in the verses 1 through one through 10. I'm going to read now, starting with verse 4 through verse 10. And can I ask you, how many of you had opportunity to read um, those verses in chapter 16 and 19? Okay, how many of you read Ezekiel 38 and 39? Okay, good, good, okay, all right. 
All right, now, uh, I mentioned Ezekiel 38 and 39 because Gog and Magog are taken from those two chapters in Ezekiel. That's the only place that, that I'm aware of that we find them. And now John brings them up here, excuse me, and we're, we, we will need to ask the question why. So the first thing that I will, oh, I was going to read it before I get into my notes here. Let's do that if we could, okay? Um, literally verse 4, and I saw, even as verse 1 begins, and I saw, and many, many visions are introduced, and I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, or also translated, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle or literally for the war. In, num in number, they are like the sand of the seashore on the seashore, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet um, were thrown. That's how it should be translated, were thrown. Um, had been thrown, is thrown in there, excuse me, I'm kind of different, taking a little tangent here, had been thrown only in relation to this vision, because it's a series of visions. So <laughs> he's saying in several visions before, you remember I said that the false prophet and the beast were thrown into the lake of fire. Now the devil is, in this vision, I see him being thrown into that very same lake of fire. I want us to be careful. He is not speaking of this in chronological order, as if the beast and false prophet have already been thrown into the lake of fire, and then a thousand years later, the devil's thrown into the lake of fire. That's not how the Greek reads. Um, they were thrown into the lake of fire and were uh, just with regard to referring to a previous vision. And we went through how Revelation is not in chronological order. You actually have several chapters ending with the consummation of the ages. It's either the judgment or the destruction of the earth. And it, Revelation is clearly not in chronological order. We saw that just with regard to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We see it taking place in chapter 19, and then Jesus comes back. And those two should be reversed. Jesus should come back, and then there's the wedding supper of the Lamb. But John's purpose here is not chronology, okay? It just isn't. And so as we come to Revelation 20, verse 1, we have to realize he is not putting this vision as if it chronologically follows the return of Christ. That's not how his other visions were. We don't want to just immediately assume, well, he must be doing it here. There's no reason for us. We don't find the word then. We don't, it's just, and I saw. We find that again in verse four. And we, we need to ask the question because it's pertinent for a premillennial view, Christ is supposed to reign on the earth 
for a thousand years with those who have believed. Now, some are more specific. It's just Israel. Some would say it is just for those who were martyred uh, in the church age. Some would say it's just for those who were martyred in the seven-year tribulation when the beast reigned. Uh, so there are some varying views, especially in the dispensational camp, uh, but also in the historic premillennial camp as far as who is actually in the millennium. But I would venture to say the majority of them would say that all believers would be. Okay, just understand that, that, that there are many who would disagree with that um, in the premillennial camp. As we are now encountering this idea of living and reigning with Christ, is there any reason according to this passage, that we should assume or state that this reigning takes place on the earth? That, that's the question that I'm putting out. That as we look at verses 1 through 3, it says this, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Now, if John were in heaven, he would have worded it this way, And I saw an angel going out of heaven or leaving heaven but he says i saw an angel coming down out of heaven there's only two places he could be he's either on earth or he is just simply not in heaven maybe somewhere between we see this when he says and i saw heaven coming down out of i i saw uh the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god um you know is he on the earth or is he somewhere in between again we don't know but he is not in heaven as we now move to another vision, and I saw, we have to ask that question again. Where is John? Where's his, where's his standpoint? How's he perceiving this? It's a vision. How, where is he? He says, and I saw thrones. And we have to then ask, what are these thrones that he is talking about? There are a number of thrones that are talked about in Revelation uh, perhaps the main one that he has talked about is a single throne, and that would be the throne of God. It is on that throne that he saw a lamb standing in its center, slain, as it were, from the foundation or the creation of the world. Um, God, obviously, the Ancient of Days, rules on this throne, but there are other thrones. There are the 24 elders. They sit on thrones. Um, there is Satan's throne. Um... Then there are those who reign, and this is a passage that's taken from Revelation, excuse me one second here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to that in just a moment, the thrones, okay? Um, all of these thrones that he is mentioning here are thrones that are in heaven. Uh, the throne, Satan's throne, is obviously symbolic. He, it says he gave his power, throne, and authority to the beast. So I don't think that there's this literal throne that was Satan's, and then Satan moved over and allowed the beast to sit in it. It's symbolic. Um, our, our struggle is we, we, we need to see, I think, these thrones as now John is in heaven and he's seeing people sitting on these thrones. And I'm going to suggest to you that that is you and I. We're going to investigate that in just a moment and I can only give a, a moment to it. The next thing he says is, and I saw souls, the souls, not just souls, but the souls. 
And these souls were those that did not receive the beast's mark. They were slain, martyred. And the question is, where, where would John see these souls? Soul, the word soul, suke, either means life, and it certainly would not mean that. Jesus lays his life down for his sheep, his suke, um, so it can very readily be translated life. It's translated uh, a whole person there on the ark. Peter tells us that eight souls were saved, so that would be body and spirit. Um, and then soul, as it's used many times, simply refers to the spirit, that you should fear him who can throw both body and soul, body and spirit, into hell. And so soul is used in those three basic ways. And the question is, how is he using it here? Um, it's used in different ways in Revelation. But with regard to the martyrs, these souls, it, it appears very strongly that he is referring to chapter 6, verse 9. And he says, and I saw the souls who had been martyred, just like this passage talks about, and they were under the altar. Now, if you can imagine the altar in heaven. I don't know how big it is, um, but the tabernacle and the temple were mirrored after the heavenly temple. How big is this altar? And all of the martyrs fit under this altar? I, I think John is trying to give us some symbolism because what is it that, what do you do on the altar? You do what? You, you sacrifice. These martyrs were sacrificed, offered up to God. Okay? They offered, they laid down their lives, their lives as sacrifices for him and for his kingdom. But more to the point, these souls are disembodied spirits. They are just the spirit. You don't see spirits wandering around earth. And I'm going to suggest to you that when he says, and I sold the souls of those who've been beheaded, etc., he is in heaven. So both because of the thrones that he sees and because of the souls that he sees, John is now in heaven. And so my challenge is, in these verses from 4 through 6, where he talks about the thousand years and living and reigning with Christ a thousand years, that trans the transition is never made. It was transition was made from from earth or somewhere between heaven and earth, where he says, I saw the angel coming down out of heaven. Now he is in heaven and he's viewing this the thrones and the souls, and we are never told that he transitions from that. So it is a it is an assumption when the premillennialist would say that Christ rules on earth. Now, the reason why they say that is because they view it chronologically, and chapter 19 tells us, well, where is Jesus? He's on the earth. But I'm suggesting to you that this is not chronological. And as a matter of fact, let's look at that word soul. When do we receive our resurrected bodies? When does that happen? Am I in my resurrected body right now? No. Thank you. No, I'm not. When do I receive my resurrected body? Looking at the order of the day of the Lord, when does that happen? Jesus comes down out of heaven. The trump, the last trumpet is blasted. Voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ rise first. Those who are alive and remain are caught up to meet with him in the air. 
are, we are resurrected at the second coming, right at the second coming. So here's my question. If chapter 19 says that Jesus has already come, why does John now see souls? Why does he still see spirits? They should be in their resurrected bodies, but they are clearly not. So again, I'm going to suggest this is not chronological. These visions are not meant to go from, from time era to time era and marching to the end and to the judgment. Okay, And so again, we realize Christ has not returned come, come Revelation 20, verse 4. We know this. I'm going to suggest because we still see the thrones, but also because we see John sees the souls that have been beheaded. He doesn't see them in their resurrected bodies. If they had their resurrected bodies, I think it would be fair to say John more than likely would say, and I saw those who had been beheaded, rather than just say, and I saw the souls. Remember, the definite article is typically used when someone has already introduced something, okay? In chapter 6, he doesn't say, and I saw the souls. He says, I saw souls under the altar. He's already introduced it. Since he's already introduced it, come chapter 20, verse 4, and I saw the souls that were behead. Remember chapter 6, verse 9? Um, he obviously didn't say chapter 6, verse 9. You know, you know what I'm saying. So he's already introduced these souls, and now he's saying, in essence, and I saw these souls again. Let's realize that the book of Revelation is written specifically to encourage the church uh, because they were going through from the 60s through the Domitian 90s, Domitian, the emperor Domitian. There was tremendous persecution, tremendous persecution, especially under Nero and especially under Domitian. And so a lot of Christians were losing their lives. John, let me back up, Christ has John see these visions and write to these seven churches to encourage them because they have gone through so many trials, so many difficulties. Um, and he, his goal, Christ's goal, John's goal now is to encourage them. <clears throat> so I'm going to say that John's perspective is heaven. There's no transition there. The living and reigning takes place in heaven, not on earth. Um, these thrones, they could be, and you know what, I, I really am not going to give it the kind of time that I wanted to, and I'm just going to encourage you when it's, and you can do this because we're going to look at it next week concerning, um, yeah, what are we looking at next week? The Satan's defeat and our reign. I believe that we reign here on earth, we will reign in the intermediate state, and we will reign more, uh, most fully in the eternal state. Whatever we have in part now, life, we have life in part, we have life in full then. We have salvation in part now, not that we're partly saved, but you understand what I'm saying. We still struggle with sin. We will be completely delivered from sin. And in that sense, our salvation will be complete then. We have the, we have been, um, adopted and that we have the, we are redeemed now, but we have our full redemption, Romans 8 says, in the eternal state. And so much of the inheritance that we have, have because we are now in Christ is in part now, then it will be in full. And so I'm going to suggest to you Romans, excuse me, Revelation 2, 26 to 27. I'm just going to touch on it. 
we, it's referring to those who overcome, they'll be given authority over the nations. Many people view that as happening during the millennium. Some would say, yeah, okay, maybe it happens in the new earth. I'm going to suggest to you it happens in the intermediate state. That when I die and go to heaven, I will be given authority over the nations. Here's why I suggest this to you. I'm going to have you do a little bit of homework if this interests you. Look at all of the letters. All of them conclude with, he who overcomes, I will give. And I'm going to suggest to you that all of those I will gives take place in the intermediate state. Uh, he will be a pillar in the temple. Now, I realize that we're not going to become a literal temple, uh, excuse me, a literal pillar, but there is no temple in the eternal in the eternal state. So he's he must be referring to us being pillars before then, um, because it has absolutely no relevancy in the eternal state. Okay? So this is as you would go through all of these seven letters, I'm going to suggest to you that a very good case can be made for us once we overcome and we die. That this is that all of those things is what we receive at that moment in the in the intermediate state. That is between whenever we die and Christ returns, okay, and ushers in the eternal state. All right. So I'm going to throw that out to you. I'm not going to spend any more time on it. We will look at it a little bit more next week. Um. I want us to look now at this phrase, they came to life and reigned. It says this in verse 4. They refers, to, it's difficult to understand who they refers to. I'm going to suggest to you it refers to those who are sitting on the thrones and those who have been, excuse me, beheaded or did not receive the mark of the beast. Um, <clears throat> do you not find it curious if this if the word they came to life or they lived and reigned, if it doesn't include those who sat on the thrones, why does John have this vision of people sitting on the thrones and they were given authority to judge? We don't see them judging anywhere. We would have to assume, well, maybe they were the ones who judged who would go into the millennium. Okay, but John doesn't tell us that. Why would we be introduced to those who sit on the thrones who have been given authority to judge? Which, by the way, the word judge in the New Testament and in the Old many times means assuming a place of leadership or ruling. Just to, Many times when we think of judge, we think of someone with a gavel in a courtroom. And I want to move away from that because the word judge or here krino, the Greek word krino, to judge means to render a verdict or to give a decision. And both rulers and judges give decisions. Have you ever wondered why the book of Judges is called the book of Judges? There's no courtroom scene there. There's no gavel. There's no, okay, let's have the uh, prosecutors and the defendants. You know, it's not a courtroom scene because that word judge means to lead. Okay? Um, and so... I'm going to suggest to you that these people sitting on the thrones have already been introduced to us and they are living and reigning and at the present. And so John's purpose 
is to focus on those who are sitting on the thrones and those, even those who have been martyred, and to say that they lived and reigned. They lived and reigned a thousand years. Um, let me throw out a suggestion here to you. When we come to this phrase, a thousand years, because they lived and reigned a thousand years, we need to see this together here. A thousand years, is this literal or is it figurative? Um, obviously, in the premillennial camp, they would view it literal, and there are numbers in the book of Revelation <laughs> that I think should be understood literally. The first seal, the second seal, the third seal. Um, but I'm going to suggest that not all numbers in Revelation should be treated that way. Last week we looked at the New Jerusalem. It was 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,200, by 1,400 miles high. The Greek is 12,000 stadia, and I'm going to say that's a coupling of 12 and 1,000. So when we transition it into 1,400 miles, we lose the symbolism there. When we look at this New Jerusalem, I think we are caught it with this, this picture of the church of Jesus Christ. He, John's, John has said, you know, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then all we're told about is this new Jerusalem. Where's the bride, the wife of the lamb? And John, and, and the angel would have told John, hello, I just showed you to, I just showed her to you. And I described it in tremendous symbolic detail. Okay. And so, I don't think we should take this 12,000 stadia high or 1,400 miles high as a literal dimension to the church or the New Jerusalem. And so we, if, because otherwise, 1,400 miles, I mean, once you get a mile into the atmosphere, it's difficult to breathe. Can you imagine 1,400 miles? Now, again, I, I'm pressing this because those who interpret the Bible literally, and for the most part, please understand, I do, but we all say we interpret it literally, except when it's obvious that we shouldn't. And here I'm going to suggest to you, it's obvious that we shouldn't. 12,000 stadia is not literal. That number is not literal. There's, not, there's a number of numbers in Revelation that are not literal. <clears throat> um, we have, uh, it, it, and, and John even plays with this, because he says, that the number of angels are thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Okay, John, wait a second. What's 10,000 times 10,000? Is that really what he's trying to say, that there's literally 10,000 times 10,000 angels? What is he trying to say? There's a lot. There's myriads of angels. You can't even count them. There's so many. 10 times 10 times 10 is 1,000. The tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, is 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. When... Daniel, fat in chapter, Daniel chapter 1, he decides not to eat the meat offered to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And he says, you'll look. You know, it's just going to be yours of my secret. You know, we're not going to do this. You just, you just test us. We're not going to do it and see if we don't turn out better. They studied hard. They were healthy. By the end of their schooling, the Bible says that they were 10 times better than the others. Does that mean that their IQ is 10 times more? Does that mean that they could figure that they were 10 times smarter? Literally? No, it's a figurative use of the word 10. And I think the reader understands this. 10 times better. 
Um, the number 10 means complete or, or much. A thousand would mean very complete or very long period of time. And we even see this in Revelation. Very much, 144,000. I'm going to suggest to you, even if we were to assume that these are Israelites, it's 12,000 from each of the tribes. It's not 11,999 or 12,001. It's exactly 12,000. Why? Because that's 12 times 1,000. His purpose is not to suggest to us that there's exactly 12,000 from each tribe. Um, and I'm not, honestly, I'm not going to have time to get into that, but the word thousand is used symbolically in, in Revelation. And so why wouldn't he use it symbolically here? So far, we have had numerous symbols. And just in this chapter alone, why should we feel obligated to assume that the thousand is literal? So they lived and they reigned a thousand years, or let me say, for a very long time. And I'm going to suggest to you that that very long time is not a thousand years between the return of Christ and the, and the resurrection and judgment, resurrection of the wicked and the judgment, but rather we are in this thousand years or this very long time now. When we looked at the binding of Satan, we, we came across a scripture passage that was very clear that Jesus says that if you're going to rob the strong man of his goods and his armor, then you first have to bind him. And his point was to rob his house. What is that house? We saw that it was used right before concerning if the kingdom is divided against itself, it will not stand. And if a city or a house, an oikia, is divided against itself, it will not stand. This is review. 20 verses later, when he's talking about when a demon is cast out of a man and it wanders through arid places seeking rest, when he comes across the house that he left, it's unoccupied, swept clean, he inhabits it, but he gets seven worse demons than himself, and the latter end of the man is worse than the beginning. That Greek word is oikos, and it refers to a man. It refers to where the demon is. He's it. He's demonizing a man. Oikia is not used in that context it's, it's not referring to the man. So when the strong man's house is being robbed, he's not referring to the man that's having a demon cast out of him. He is referring to Satan's kingdom, city, or house. So you follow that. And as we went through a number of scripture passages, we saw that Satan was bound at the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the strong man who would be Satan, when he was bound, and it's the same Greek word he used here in Revelation 20, we realized that with the, with the, with the inauguration of the, with the kingdom, specifically the cross and resurrection of Christ, Satan was bound, the strong man was bound, and once he was bound, that's the only way you can rob his house. His house is his kingdom. The only way that we can, through the new kingdom, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, rob Satan's kingdom of darkness and bring the lost into the new kingdom is for Satan to have been bound. And now, post-millennialists say that that happens through the church age, as the gospel advances more and more, Satan is bound more and more and more. I, I just don't see it that way. I see Satan being bound at a moment, and that would be at the cross and the resurrection. That now enables us, as we proclaim the gospel, 
that we are able to rob his house and see the lost rescued, as Colossians 1 say, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um, there's numerous other passages we looked at, so I'm not going to rehash that, but Satan is bound at the beginning of the church age, and he is bound for a very long time for the very reason of the gospel going forth and eventually towards the close of the parousy, we don't know how far, it could be right before it, it could be many ages before, or, or could be a hundred years before, we don't know how long, but there we're going to see a tremendous progression of the kingdom of God that is going to spread throughout the earth. It's not just that the gospel is going to be preached, but people are going to be responding to this gospel such that nations will stream into his kingdom. Okay. So this happens only because Satan has been bound. But at the end of the age, Satan is now released. And as he is released, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here because I am skipping a very important part here. So hang on to that thought. I need to take us back to this concept, forgive me, but this concept of the first resurrection. Very important for us to understand this. Um, the first resurrection, according to the premillennial view, happens here, and it's the resurrection of the righteous. We then have a millennium, and then we have the resurrection of the wicked. So the first resurrection, according to the premillennial view, would be the resurrection of the righteous. Then after a thousand years, we have the resurrection of the wicked. I'm going to suggest to you that the, the, the natural reading and the plain reading of Scripture, and we saw many of these passages, is that the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked happen at the same time. And they are immediately ushered into judgment. <clears throat> so Jude, and Enoch gives a prophecy, the seventh from Adam, Enoch is called, that when when Christ returns, he will come with his holy ones, and he comes to judge. Not just to dispense rewards to the righteous, but he comes to judge the wicked. So why would Jesus come and then a thousand years judge? The plain reading of Jude is that he came, comes to judge. He comes and immediately he judge, he, we receive our resurrected bodies and he judges all. This is part of what's called the day of the Lord. Okay, so as we look at this first resurrection, is it a resurrection of the body or is it something else? And I, I'd like to investigate this a bit because the amillennialist is told this is the toughest portion of his argument. And I'm going to suggest not really. Why would I say that? As we look at this, Number one, we see this first resurrection applying to those who lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So they are resurrected. In what way could we see ourselves being resurrected but not bodily resurrected. Because that resurrection that he's talking about takes place during the millennium, 
or the church age. And I'm going to suggest to you that the second resurrection that's not mentioned here, but it's implied if there's a first, there's going to be a second. That that resurrection is going to be one here, and that is a bodily resurrection. So I want to present to you a case for this first resurrection being a spiritual resurrection and not a bodily resurrection, okay? If you would turn to Matthew chapter... Let me get my focus here. Matthew chapter 22. I think there is a fair parallel between they lived and a resurrection. At the end of the thousand years, the rest of the dead lived, that is, they were resurrected too. All right? Can I show you something as you're turning there? I'm going to start erasing this, so uh, I'll I'll do it right here. Sorry, those of you who may be post-millennials, but I am erasing a little bit of your diagram to make room for what I want to draw here. Does that show my bias? I'm sorry. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna box this off so that. All right. So here we go. I'm going to abbreviate first resurrection, second resurrection. I'm going to suggest to you that this is spiritual and this is physical. Then we have the first death. And the second death. Now you tell me, is the first death physical or spiritual? It is physical. Is the second death a physical death? It is, it is a separation from God that is for eternity. And the problem is they're in their resurrected bodies. So in a sense they're alive, but they are dead, that is, they are spiritually dead, and they have been spiritually dead and separated from Christ, and now this this spiritual death is a death of agony that that John, at the end of this chapter, calls the lake of fire. Hell is the second death. That is not a physical death where the body dies and goes into the ground, but it is a spiritual death. And it is something that lasts forever. Now understand when you're born and you are, uh, you're under sin, you're in bondage and enslaved to it, you experience spiritual death. Um, and it is only when we are found in Christ that we now have new life. But the person who is lost never comes to Christ and now spends eternity in hell. They have been spiritually dead that entire time. That spiritual death, though, is accentuated when it's in hell with tremendous agony. So I'm going to call this, and I think it's fair, this spiritual death, excuse me, this second death is spiritual. Those who experience the first resurrection will not experience the second death. That is, excuse me, that is what the the passage here tells us. And that those who, at least according to this, the those who were dead, they then experience in part the second resurrection. And, and 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to elaborate on that in a bit. The first resurrection. Are you there in Matthew 22? Um, this is a passage in which Jesus is encountering the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in uh, the physical resurrected body. They don't believe in the intermediate state. They just believe once you die, just like an atheist would, really, once you die, that's it. There is nothing more to experience. And in chapter 22, uh, I'm trying to find this here. Where am I here? Here we go. Um, it says in verse 28, now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Okay, and, and I'm, forgive me, I'm not going to go through the whole parable here because this man had seven wives. You know, which of these, or this woman had seven husbands, which, um, whose, whose wife will she be of the seven brothers? Whose wife will she be? And Jesus basically says, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Verse 30, at the resurrection... People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, but about the resurrection of the dead. I want you to see that. What is the topic that Jesus is addressing? Is he addressing the resurrection of our bodies? Or is he referring to when we die and go to heaven, what we call the intermediate state? He just simply calls it the resurrection of the dead. I'm not going to be looking for an answer right now. We may assume he's talking about the resurrection of the body, since in all honesty, that is how this uh, anastasis, that's how that Greek word is usually used in the Bible. It's referring to the resurrection at the end of the age. And Jesus is wanting to prove a point here concerning what he says is the resurrection of the dead. But what example does he use to prove this resurrection? He says, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now that's the same Greek word, zao, that we saw. They lived and reigned a thousand years. And we equated this, they lived with the first resurrection. Jesus is basically saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God referred to them as the God of, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am. So if he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive or dead? They must be alive. Otherwise, Jesus, or otherwise God... And this happened at the burning bush with Moses. I am the God. He would have said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. And I was the God of Jacob. But you know what? They're all dead. And so, oh well, such is life. He didn't say that. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that is Jesus' point. He is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. But wait a second, Jesus. Your point was to prove the resurrection of the dead. And you just proved that when we die, we go to heaven. So do you see that Jesus, even though this Greek word anastasis 
resurrection, <clears throat> excuse me, resurrection, usually refers to the resurrection of the body, it can be used to refer to that intermediate state. When I die and my body goes into the ground, I am raised to heaven. And so to use this term first resurrection to refer to that moment in which I die, my body goes into the ground, and I ascend to be with the Lord forever, it's fair to call that a resurrection. Jesus was using it in that way here. That when he is trying to prove the resurrection of the dead, his point was, li- was actually to prove that when I die, I go to heaven. Not at the end of the age, we're going to receive resurrected. That, that's not what he was saying. So, Jesus himself believed in two resurrections. Jesus certainly believed in the resurrection of the dead. When Martha comes to him and says, you'd only come earlier. Lazarus wouldn't have died. And, and Jesus, she, Jesus said, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what she says there. Uh, or he says, um, I'm going to raise him up. Well, I know you're going to raise him up at the last day. He's referring to the resurrection of the body. Okay? I mean, Jesus believed in the resurrection of the body. But here, I'm trying to share with you, he uses his term resurrection of the dead to show the first resurrection, which is a spiritual resurrection. And that first resurrection happens when I die, my body goes into the ground, and I ascend. So, Scripture does refer to this as a resurrection. Okay? Um, The second resurrection is this right here. This is when both, like myself, when I die, my body goes into the ground, I am raised to be with him. Does that happen to the ungodly when they die? No, No, they don't come to life. They actually, their body goes into the ground and their spirit goes to Hades. So it's not fair to say that they come to life when they die. They don't. They experience, they continue to experience a spiritual death, not a spiritual life. They're in Hades. But at the end of the age, they will be raised up, and that is part of the second resurrection. But they're not going to experience life throughout this church age. When Christ comes back, they will be raised up, they will come to life, they will experience the resurrection, only to be ushered at judgment into hell forever and ever. Both death and Hades are then cast into hell. As I mentioned to you before, nobody right now is in hell. They are in Hades. And at the end of the age, because they're disembodied spirits, at the end of the age, death and Hades, all of them are cast into this lake of fire, the second death, which is hell. Okay? Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's fair to say when you die, you go to hell because, I mean, I'm not sure exactly the difference biblically between Hades and hell. I just know for some reason the Bible does make a distinction. Um, so this second resurrection, the wicked are not the only ones who participate in this second resurrection. And his point here in Revelation 20 isn't to say that. His point is simply to say, you who die and you're resurrected, the rest of the dead, that is the wicked dead, they're not going to be raised up until the end of the age. 
But then you, and he doesn't say this, but you'll be receiving a resurrected body too. So I don't want us to, to just look at this and say, well, um, the second resurrection is only experienced by the wicked, which is what the premillennialists say. This is the first resurrection. This is the second resurrection. John's not saying that. It might seem that he is, but if you look at it, he's not saying that the dead in Christ, the rest of the dead are the only ones who experience the second resurrection. Number one, second resurrection is not mentioned here, but it does say that they will not come to life until the end of the second uh, until the end of the thousand years, and it seems that he's referring to the se- that's the second resurrection. Now I realize that this might be a little bit confusing at this point, so I'm not going to press this anymore. But I will say that the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, and that's when I die and go to heaven. The second resurrection is when we all, righteous and wicked, receive our resurrected bodies. Those who have followed Christ will go to glory, be the eternal state. Those who have disobeyed, dishonored Christ, and rejected him, they will spend eternity in hell. Okay? What I want to do now, and and I don't have too much time, but I'm going to try and see if we can do this in 10 minutes. Um, Yeah. So if someone were to ask me, so Mike, are you saying that we're in the millennium right now? I would say technically we are not. And why is that? Who, because who is it that experiences the millennium, the thousand-year reign with Christ? It's dead people. Okay, When I die and go to heaven, that is the thousand years that I live and reign with Christ. So that's why I show here the church age and the millennium running parallel with one another. Because when you and I die, we will be sitting on thrones... And in the Bible, Jesus even says, when he who overcomes, I will have him sit with me on my throne. Okay? And it's not that, that his throne is going to get really, really crowded. He's obviously saying, you're going to reign. That, that leaders, rulers, kings reign. I'm kind of setting you up, but I'm not going to answer this question. How are you going to reign in the intermediate state? I don't know if you've ever thought, what on earth are we going to do in the intermediate state? Are we just going to be worshiping? I'm, I believe we're going to be doing a lot of that. There's a lot more, I think, that we'll be doing. Um, and I want to be careful because what I'm going to share with you is based on only a few passages. And I'm going to say a little bit about it. But it does have some broad implications as far as what will be happening in the intermediate state. So those who die and rule and reign with Christ, they are the ones who experience what's called this thousand years or this millennium, not those of us who were down here on earth. Okay? So technically, I am not in the millennium, but when I die, I will be. Okay? So I'm being a little picky with that, but just so that you understand. Okay. Satan will be released from his prison. Um, Do you see where it says that? Satan will be... What is his prison, according to this scripture passage? His prison is... What's his prison? The abyss, sure. His prison is the abyss. At the end of the thousand years, he's going to be released from his prison, which is the abyss. Can I suggest something to you? As we go back to chapter 13, 
Go ahead and do that, by the way. The end of chapter 12, it reads this way. This is where uh, the dragon has pursued the woman who is Israel. Uh, he tries to destroy her, can't, and so he turns his attention towards um, towards the, I would say, the Gentile believers in Christ. And it says it this way. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war. This is what Satan's goal is. To make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now that phrase, who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus, is not just Jews, it's Gentiles as well, so it's the church. And we can you can do a study on that in Revelation and see that it's not just Jews, it, it's the whole church. So he turns his attention to the church, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw. This is now a new vision that John has right there. Where does the first vision leave us? He want, He's going out to make war against the saints, and he is standing on the seashore. Interesting way to end. I, I want you to kind of see this as a film, if you will. The scene ends with the dragon standing at the seashore. The next scene is... The beast coming out of the sea. Can I ask you this end time beast? And some of you may have different views of the beast. Some of you may feel that the beast is a system. Some of you may feel that the beast is the Roman Catholic Church or the Pope or Nero or there's been a number of suggestions. Whatever your view is, I think it would be fair to say, I think it'd be fair enough to say that the beast would at least be a living being. He's thrown alive into the, the lake of fire, it says. But I, I, I see him as the man of lawlessness. However you see him, I'm going to just ask you this. Do you really think that he is going to come out of a literal sea? Is this a literal sea? Does, he, it, 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 does, does Satan create him and throw him into the sea? And he comes out with a bunch of seaweed on him and clamshells hanging to his waist? You know what no, this is this is symbolic. What would the sea be symbolic? And this is a really hard question. I realize that. What would the sea be symbolic of? Yeah, a thought. Yeah, um, the like he would, he would come out and that he would be like noticed or like, seen out of a sea of people, like unbelievers. So if you would group the sea of unbelievers together, he would come out of that. He would see. So you're saying it's a sea of people that he's coming out of. Okay. Now, the only problem is the sea is never referred to here as a sea of people. We have the waters of people that the, the harlot's sitting on. And I'm sure we see the sea. Also realize that in the new heavens and the new earth, it clearly says there will be no sea. It's almost as if the sea is a bad thing, symbolically. I do believe that there will be seas. I just think that they're going to be fresh water, and you don't call a freshwater body a sea. You call it a big lake or something. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked here. The sea, he wants, us, he wants to use the word sea because the sea represents that which is evil. And it also helps the reader to go back to, Rev, to Daniel 7 that talks about the four beasts that came out of the sea. That is what Daniel saw. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, they came out of the sea. And, and we're, we're immediately told that the beast is described as a lion, a leopard, and a bear, which is what those first three nations um, were. Those were the three beasts, the first three beasts. Okay. 
we now are then so symbolically he's coming out of this evil background um maybe even the embodiment of evil whatever but in chapter 11 verse 7 it says that the beast now when they had finished their testimony the two witnesses the beast that comes up from the abyss not the sea the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them in Revelation 17, verse 8, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of, not the sea, but the abyss, and go to his attention. How is it that he comes from the sea, the embodiment of evil, maybe even the very source of his power and authority, but now it says he's coming out of the abyss. Is he literally coming out of the abyss? Only demons dwell in the abyss. How can he? And I'm going to suggest to you this way. He comes out of the sea, and it says, and Satan gave him his power, authority, power, throne, and authority. By saying that he comes up out of the abyss, in essence is saying, Satan, who is bound in the abyss, and when he comes out, now empowers this beast. And by saying that, his even as his nature is reflective of this sea, which is evil, because it's not in the new heavens and new earth, it's evil, and even so, the, that which is from the abyss, Satan himself, when he's released, empowers him as well. Okay? And so when Satan is released, my suggestion to you is when a demon is not in the abyss, that is tantamount to the arid places, when a demon comes out of a man, he wanders through arid places seeking rest, Jesus said. Those arid places are the abyss. When Satan, when a demon comes out of the abyss, there's only one place he is, and that is demonizing a man. Satan comes out of the abyss specifically to demonize the beast, thereby giving him his power, throne, and authority. And we can literally, we, not literally, we can symbolically say that the beast comes out of the abyss. And what does it say that in Revelation 20 that he now does? When Satan is released from the abyss, He does what? Verse 7 and 8. What does he do? As soon as he's released from the abyss, he deceives. Deceives, deceives who? Individuals? No. I'm not going to say he doesn't, but that's not the focus. Groups of people called the nations. The nations. How many nations does he deceive? To the ends, to the four corners. The implication is all of them. Man! Second Thessalonians 2 says, when the, the man of, we know the man of lawlessness hasn't arrived because the apostasy has not happened. The apostasy. I believe that apostasy is both political and religious. But as they leave the church, as the weeds are known for who they are, they're not wheat. And I'm going to suggest that the beast is part of that. He then is able to lead all of these nations and they turn on the church. They turn on the true followers of Jesus Christ. And this puts it this way. They marched across the breadth of the earth. And you have this picture of Satan with all of his nations marching or he's, he's now embodied in the beast 
who deceives all nations. And the beast's purpose is two things, to deceive the nations and make war against the saints. And that is Satan's goal here. He deceives the nations, and now he makes war against the saints. It almost feels like that's happening right now because of the persecution against Christians and believers in the church. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to say yes, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, because the picture I get here is far more vast than that. Um, you know what? I, I am so limited on time, and, and I wanted us to compare 16 and 20. And I, I bit off more than I can chew. I really don't want to extend this. And I am, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you uh, 10 things that I see and... Uh, We'll see what we can do with this. I, I honestly, I believe this is significant because Revelation 16 is the battle of Armageddon. It happens at the end of this age. And my suggestion to you is that is exactly what we're reading here. All right. Number one, Satan. Satan is the author of both of these wars. Demons come out of Satan's mouth, the beast's mouth, the false, false prophet's mouth to deceive the nations. So Satan is the author. His goal in both of these chapters, the Battle of Armageddon and this war here, his goal is to deceive. That is exactly what he does. He deceives. Secondly, the focus is the nations. In both the Armageddon and this battle, the focus is the nations. The focus is the kings and the leaders and the rulers of the world. You're a king and a ruler because of what? You lead a nation. And so it's nations being gathered together, and they're going to fight. Now, um, they're going to, uh, it, it is going to be worldwide. Chapter 16 says, uh, it uses the phrase, of the whole world. And in chapter 20, it says, in the four corners of the earth. Both of these battles will encompass the whole world. Both of them talk, use the word gather together. Um, and so these nations are gathered together. They are unified in their assault on the people of God. Uh, point number six, it is for one purpose, the war. It is not a war. There are three times in which this phrase, the war, is used in Revelation. It is used concerning the battle of Armageddon on the great day of God. It is used in chapter 19 when Christ comes and fights the beast. The NIV translates it this way, to make war against the rider on the horse. But it's literally um, that he gathers together these generals and leaders of all nations to make or, yeah, to make the war against the rider on the horse. Again, when we use the definite article, it's because it's been introduced to us before. There is, there's not two the wars. There's not three the wars. There's only one war that we would call the war. And so for that reason, I'm going to suggest to you Revelation 16, the Battle of Armageddon. Right here, chapter 19, when Christ comes back and the war that he has against the beast and false prophet is the war. The war that's mentioned here in chapter 20, they are all the same war because they all use this phrase, the war. Not just a war or a big war, but the war. Um, 
they are gathered from the armies of the east in chapter 19. Um, and here, Gog and Magog, and they are, that's a reflection back to Ezekiel 38 and 39, and those are from the north. And can I just say that many times with reference to the Euphrates River, that is sometimes spoken of as in the east, and sometimes spoken of as in the north. And so if you have an army coming from the Euphrates, and you can see this in the Old Testament, sometimes it's referred to as in the north, and sometimes it's referred to as in the east. So I'm gonna say, it's not the west, it's not the south, it's the north and the, and the east, okay? Um, they travel a great distance from the Euphrates, and its water, it says, was dried up to prepare the way, chapter 16. Here it says they marched across the breadth of the earth. Their destination is Israel. Armageddon means the mountain of Megiddo that's in Israel. And here it's the city of God's people. I, I take that symbolically, however, rather than literally as Jerusalem. But it is the people of God, the new Jerusalem. And then lastly, the end of the battle will be a display of God's judgment. Um, and here's an interesting thing. The plagues in chapter 16 are very similar. They're like six, seven, or eight Hail, fire, um, forgive me, my uh, uh, rain. Um, that there's like six to eight that are mentioned in Revelation 16 that are also mentioned in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. When Jesus comes from heaven and he is revealed from heaven, he comes with his powerful angels. And he immediately inflicts judgment on the wicked. And it says, uh, let, let me quote it to you so I, I, I don't misquote it. But he says this, um, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. That happens at his second coming. That happens at Armageddon. And that's exactly what happens here in Revelation 20. What is it that destroys these armies that march across the breadth of the earth to attack the church or the camp of God's people? But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So I'm going to suggest to you that the battle that we see in Revelation 16, Battle of Armageddon, is the very same battle that we see here in Revelation 20. Um, there's, and, and honestly, I've, I've skipped some stuff. I'm sorry if I went into more detail than you were able to follow. There is a lot here. I may have made a mistake just with regard to going into as much detail as I did. But here is, here is the bottom line, okay? <clears throat> In the very end, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our God wins. <laughs> that even though Satan's goal and the beast's goal is to make war against the saints, we will triumph. But here is the thing. The beast comes, and when he comes, he will most assuredly sift the church. And it's going to be those who are true followers of Christ that will remain faithful to him. And those who are nominal believers, they are the ones who will be exposed. The parable that Jesus gave was the parable of the weeds and the wheat. The weeds, the Greek word there is dardanelle. 
Dardanelle, when it comes up, looks just like wheat, except at the very last stage when the head opens, it's a lot of fluff of nothing. But wheat, you see the wheat grains. At that moment, you can see the difference between the weeds and the wheat, or the darnel and the wheat. And so I'm going to suggest to you that God is even going to use the beast himself for his ultimate purposes to sift the church. Who are those who are truly following me and who are not? Not only will we find out in judgment, but those who are not will choose to follow the beast. And those who are will say, I'm not going to. I am willing to die for my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think that's what we need. That, that type of resolve needs to be in our hearts as we face whatever persecution. At the, the end times, they may be 100 or 200 years from now. They could be tomorrow. And so our challenge is, where do we stand? Where do you stand? Are you the weed or are you the wheat? If you were pressed, would you confess Christ or would you abandon him? Would you be willing to suffer persecution at any cost? Or would you give in? The, quest, the answer to that question is an eternal question because it has eternal consequences. Are we following Christ? All right. And if Christ is in you, I'm going to tell you this. You will stand firm. You truly will. I don't want you to be afraid. Oh, my goodness. What if I, you know, wow, if, if I just happen to, what, what if suddenly I just say, I recant and I lose everything? I'm going to tell you right now that's not going to happen. Where is your heart? Is it for Christ or is it not? It truly is a simple question. You're not going to get tricked, okay? But we honestly, we face that decision every day, don't we? Am I going to follow Christ or am I not? I, I need to close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the challenge of your word. Uh, we have entered into a very difficult passage here to grasp and understand so much symbolism. Um, and, and some of it may be perhaps literal, and Lord, we do need your wisdom, but the bottom line is, Jesus, we stand for you. No matter how tough the onslaught of the kingdom of darkness is against us, your word says that the gates of Hades will not prevail. We will assault them, and we will win many. We will win nations. And I'm just asking you, Father, give us, give us that passion and that heart for you to follow you no matter what, in Christ's name. Amen.